and welcome. You are listening to an episode of the Sales Chat Show. To stream or download a host of further free episodes that will power your sales success, please visit saleschatshow.com. We really hope that you enjoy and benefit from this episode. And hello, folks. Welcome to yet another episode from the Sales Chat Show podcast, saleschatshow.com, driving your sales forwards. As always, in the Sales Chat Show studio, Mr. Graham Jones, Mr. Phil Jessen, and I am Simon Hazeldean. And this episode is entitled, The Next Time You Demotivate One of Your Sales Team, it will be for one of these reasons. Oh my goodness, we have five guaranteed ways, according to neuroscience research, that you can demotivate your sales team. So we are actually discussing what's known as the SCARF model, S-C-A-R-F, which is an, an acronym. And this came, and this was developed by American neuroscientist David Rock and um, Australian, actually, but never mind. Is, oh, is he? Is he Australian? Thank you. Thank you, Graham. Australian neuroscientist, yeah, he lives in America, but he lives in America. It, yeah. Hence my confusion. Apologies, Dr. Rock, for uh, changing your nationality. Um, his paper was called the uh, SCARF, a brain-based model for collaborating with and influencing others. And we think it's got some great applications, both with interactions with customers, but definitely with uh, for sales managers, sales directors to think about when you're working with your team. And SCARF stands for, for five key domains, as, as David Rock described them, that influence our behavior in sort of social situations. And they are firstly status, our relative importance to others. Secondly, certainty, our ability to predict the future. Third, autonomy, our sense of control over events. Fourth, relatedness, how safe we feel with others. And fifth, fairness, how fair we perceive the exchanges between people to be. And the model's based on neuroscience research that implies that these five social domains activate, which is a fascinating idea, the same threat and reward responses in our brain that we rely on for physical survival. So if if you trigger one of these in a negative way with, say, one of your sales team, you are going to be kicking off a very negative kind of threat response, a strong emotional reaction. But if you can kind of trigger one of these five domains in a positive way, you're going to be adding to the reward. Hence, the impact this may have from a, a positive or or negative impact. So we thought great model to share and for to to discuss those. So we're going to going to kind of go through each of them in turn and just gather some thoughts from our um, our fine assembled body of brains that we have on the sales chat show today. So... Where are they? They're not. They're not on the call yet. Are they? <laughs> oh, they've not arrived. Anyway, we'll have to just do with <laughs> Phil, do with us. Graham, and myself. Yeah. So we'll we'll model. We'll they model. They couldn't make it. <laughs> we'll model through. Yeah, we were looking for some leading experts, and they weren't available. So we're we're second best, <laughs> aren't we? So okay, chaps. So uh, in terms of status, what's your thinking in terms? of positive and negative things for sales managers, sales directors to be thinking about here? Who are you asking? 
uh, either of you, Mr. Jones, <laughs> Mr. Jones, go on. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, in terms of status, people need to know that they are, as you said, this is about ultimately all of these things tie into survival. Yeah. And in fact, more and more psychological neuroscience research shows that many of the things that we think are higher brain human activities are nothing of the sort. Uh, they are all deeply embedded and it's about survival. And if you think about that, that's really quite sensible because if the brain was allowed to do all these higher things and wonderful things um, and human beings went off at tangents to survivability, mm. then the human race would die out uh, because we'd all be killing ourselves uh, or doing too many dangerous things or being in situations that were threatening um, and therefore the human race wouldn't survive. So actually, in spite of the fact that we do have a very powerful brain, we can do wonderful things like send things to Mars and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, actually, at the root of all those things, activities, is survivability of the species. Um, and so everything we do is connected to those survival instincts, as it were. And, and these five steps, uh, the, the research that he did shows us that there is a great deal of neuroscience connection back to those basic survival uh, areas of our brain. And so... Um, if you think about that in terms of your status as an individual within the workplace, you don't want your status as an individual to be threatened in any way. So um, everything that a manager does uh, to an individual that could threaten their status. So, you know, saying negative things that make them think their job might be at stake, those kind of things are going to be perceived as a threat to their status. And so just simple everyday conversations that you have with your team could trigger a, a status response that's negative. So I'm going to think it's things, isn't it, like mishandling feedback, right? If you yep. don't do feedback in the right way, you know, <clears throat> the old classic concept of reprimand in private, praise in public, for example. And we're not saying you don't give people tough feedback from time to time, but you've got to understand it comes at a cost, doesn't it, right, in terms of the the negative impact. But doing anything, you know, criticising people in team meetings, in public, and also what we just recorded on a previous episode, public league tables, right? <clears throat> That's an absolute status, right? Oh, you're, you're number eight out of eight in the team. Well, <clears throat> that's not likely to be perceived particularly well by those very powerful uh, parts of the parts of the human brain you know so and and probably recognition and praise for contribution and things is probably something a lot more managers could do you know better i think certainly based on what i what i experience when i talk to talk to managers so i think that's that i think one, I think one of the things that i've noticed within uh, clients that i've worked with is that sometimes senior people when they've been unable to resolve a tricky interpersonal situation, uh, they go and change the organization chart. And in the process of changing the organization chart and the reporting line that Mr. Difficult now has to follow, it's effectively changing the status that that individual yeah. had. Although their job title might be the same, the fact that there's now this extra reporting line being added 
everybody in the team knows that the status of that individual has been affected. But it's often a consequence, I think, of a poorly trained executive not having the skills or the yeah. determination or the wherewithal to go and solve <clears throat> the interpersonal problem with a key individual. So they, they think they've sorted it by changing the reporting line and it just makes it worse. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and also I would just say, you know, inspired by your comment, job titles just seem to be an area to proceed with great caution about people do seem to get awfully attached to certain job titles or dislike some so you know i think it's not a just a trivial thing because particularly if you look at rocks re research here so guys what about certainty which is about sort of ability to ability to predict the future so i think my my thinking on this was you know by if you're providing really regular reviews, coaching reviews with your people, with your folks on their forecast and sales pipeline, that is actually helping them to have a better understanding of what might be happening next month and the month after. You can't control the future, but I think helping your people to see that a little bit further ahead and to be, I think, on top of their opportunities in their CRM to be, you know, the sales forecast is more valid or accurate than it, than maybe it was previously in helping. I think that, that can help, I think, to build a feeling I've got a bit more certainty what the next month's going to look like, the next quarter's going to look like. That was just my that was just my kind of thinking thinking there. Well, I, I think one quick comment from me on that. Sorry, Graham, I think I just interrupted you there. Um, but if you think about what's happened to us as a society over the last 18 months, um, the world has become a very uncertain. Yeah unpredictable place but the the upside to that is that people have been retrained to realize that that's where we are now so i think in business generally speaking most of the time there may be a lot less certainty but what that means on the other four letters is that they've got to be very strong so i think the interesting thing about that scarf model is that you can still be very effective if four out of the five are working and one might have a big question mark over it. Clearly, if only two are working or one is working, that's, that's going to be disastrous. Mm -hmm. But certainty might be one of those things that we've all just got to get, accept is the way of the world now. Uncertainty is the way of the world now. One of the things that we know about the human brain is that it is useless at making any kind of prediction. Um, and so it can only really predict based on past events. Mm. So it stores memory of past events and then predicts the future based on the memory of those past events. And so if you've had, um, you're in a situation where you have got nothing in your memory that can help you, you will try and make a prediction about what that future is likely to be. So, you know, a new competitor comes into town and you will try and predict what you should do in response to that new competitor. The fact is you've got no nothing reliable to go on in order to make that prediction, which is why most of our predictions in business are always wrong. There are very few predictions in business that are ever right, and it's because we don't have the history to go on. So from a survival perspective, there are things we can predict, and we learn them as babies, as uh, small developing children you know that if you put your hand near heat 
it is going to be hot. You learn that very quickly as a, as a child. Um, and so those kind of things we can predict. If we see something that generates heat and it's a device that we've never seen in our life, it's some kind of technology that we've never seen before, we can predict that it will be dangerous to touch it um, because that's based on past knowledge, experience, memory. Most of what we do in business, we haven't got real memory for. Um, and so in a team of salespeople, uh, you're asking them to predict things. Uh, it is always going to be uncertain. And so the more certainty that you can give your team, uh, the better that's going to be. The more certainty people have about the future of the business, the better it's going to be. The more certainty there is about their job, the better it's going to be for them. And so that's about thinking about what have we got in our memory bank that we can link to something in the future to prove there is that connection. So that becomes more reassuring to people. So you've got to look not to the future to make your predictions, but to the past. And it's looking at what you did in the past that will enable you to make it more certain for people in the future. Yeah, I would also um, slightly, slight, slight tangent, but it's like the, um, you know, the Peter Drucker management cycle, plan, do, review, or the plan, do, check, act concept from total quality management. So plans only as good as the data you've got at the time. And to Graham's point, if we're not great at it, human beings predicting the plans likely to have flaws, and then you gather data as you go along. So it's that you plan, you take action, you review action, you take corrective action and change the plan. So, you know, that's, that's why that's such a great cycle to go through. I think as sales managers, as sales, as sales, as sales leaders. So it's good. And, you know, I think Phil's making a very important point. If you've got some change taking place in your organization, you've really got to make sure you're ramping up the other four because the certainty is going to suffer and people, human beings desperately, desperately don't like change. It has to be, it has to be said as a general as a general comment so chaps autonomy so you know feeling feeling kind of ink uh, you know master of your own master of your own destiny what do you think sales leaders sales managers should do to to kind of press the positive button on autonomy or avoid to uh, to to stop pressing the negative button I, th I think from from my point of view i i would encourage anybody in sales management when they're having a one-to-one -one with a sales body uh, to talk about the outcomes and the timings that they have in mind, but not go into detail about how that is to be achieved. Yeah. In my language, it's been quite clear about the final destination that the salesperson needs to end up at, but not interfering with the route. And if the salesperson chooses to go left, as it were, and you would have gone right, then providing going left is still within company policy, the values, the financial constraints of the business, the law, and all the rest of it, then let them go left. Because if they think going left is a better route than you're going right, then inevitably yeah. it will be. So I think for me, it's about being clear about the outcome, being clear about the destination, but still giving people plenty of scope yeah. to manage themselves and their slice of the business. Um, and uh, in my language, they've still got to choose the route. I tend to describe it. Uh, and it's not my, it wasn't my concept originally. It's something I picked up when I was on a sales management program as a sales manager myself, you know, giving them freedom within certain boundaries is what you reminded me of there, Phil. Yeah. So ethical, legal, revenue, whatever, you know, values, 
within those over to you and let them use their creativity, imagination, individual brilliance, and they typically astound you. <laughs> it's, it's giving giving people the giving people the freedom. Yeah. When we look at why people leave their job, um, everything boils down to they had reduced autonomy. They, yeah. uh, they felt they were controlled in some way and they weren't able to do what they wanted to do. Mm. Um, and so the, the churn in jobs, you know, you can, when you do exit surveys and so on, it all comes down, everything you look at actually comes down to uh, a sense of autonomy wasn't there. And I think this is of growing importance to businesses. Uh, one of the things uh, that we do know that the internet has had an impact upon in the younger generations is that it's given them a greater sense of autonomy because they are able to control things. They are able to decide who they um, link to. They've decided who they can connect to. They're not being forced by a group of people in an office as to who their social connection should be, which is how it used to be. People's social life was generated around the people they worked with. It doesn't have to be. So younger generations have had much more control. They can control what they put online. Um, so they've been able to contribute. Uh, and so that's giving them a much greater sense of autonomy. So when they now go to work and they have less autonomy, they don't like working there. Uh, and we're now seeing many businesses beginning to realize this so there are plenty of businesses now where there is no employment contract other than this is the job you've got to do. And it just say a new sign say, yeah, I'll do that job. There are no working hours, there are no holidays. There's nothing. There's just, this is the job. This is the salary. You get on with it. There's no place where you're required to work. Lots of businesses increasingly like that, particularly in the tech sector now. And also the COVID situation has seen people realize they can do their work from home. And we've had all those episodes that we've done about yes. uh, relating to people working um, at a distance. But what's crucial about that is that now people are beginning to drift back to work. They don't want to. Many businesses have realized that it's the autonomy of being able to work the way you want to work. And we saw this, a big backlash. One of the big American banks said, everybody's got to come back to work. The chief executive said, everybody's come back to work. There was enormous social come media back to backlash. The uh, come back to the office, it was specifically. Yeah, come back to the office. Come yeah, back sorry. to the office. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Huge social media backlash against that because that was threatening autonomy. And so that bank is going to lose staff. It will inevitably lose staff because they don't want to work for a boss who wants to tell them what to do. So on the subject of autonomy, here's, I'm going I'm to make a shocking statement. I am a big fan of micromanagement. What? Oh, yes. What I mean by that is I'm a big fan of micromanagement about the right task at the right time with the right person. So let's say, for example, it's the first time somebody's had to meet a C-level executive and they don't quite know what to do. I might say, hey, you know, Louisa, I know this is your first time in the C-suite, so shall you and I work a bit more closely together on this just to help you to feel a bit more? And she's probably going to, oh, thank you, that's really helpful. But when you do it at the wrong person at the wrong time, you are really hack people off, right? So you know, it's, it, I, yeah. I don't. I know. I'm no fan of micromanagement. In, in, I was in saying in jest, but I am a fan of with people's buy-in and commitment to work more closely to help them with things they're less experienced or not at all experienced with, and then for the rest of it, you back off, right? Don't you? And just give them the freedom. Give them the freedom to do it. You know, that's the great thing around sales. If your results come in 
fantastic. You know, how, how you've done it. You know, I used to have a boss who was, you know, very fond of saying, if you're, if you're hitting quota, I don't care if you're on the golf course on Friday. He literally was there. You know, so we're managed by, we're managed by output, not, not input. So. I know. I noticed you called that a quota, not a target. So Gra- Graham is not not <laughs> so reacting to that. I'm just. I'm just. I just changed the word target and using quota. It means exactly the same thing. But I was hoping to slip it past Mr. Jones. Arm. All right, I've um, logged it. Yeah, he's got it now. He's got it now. We'll have to do it. We're going to be doing an episode why you should scrap sales quotas next. That will be another episode from the sales chat show, folks. So uh, if you've not seen the episode why you should scrap sales targets, which are indeed two different episodes, do do go and have a listen to that argument. Uh, You'll probably enjoy it. So uh, the uh, the, uh, fourth one, relatedness. So a lack of relatedness can leave people feeling isolated and lonely. So I think that that's been a big thing for sales managers, sales directors, company owners to be thinking about during all the various COVID things that are that are there. But um, I guess we can we you know we've we've talked about having buddy systems in place and checking in checking in, not checking up with people more often to make sure that that happens in um, in that and team meetings. You know things like team meetings can can really help to get the just get people together and allow them to build and to bond will will help and you know helps to release oxytocin i believe when you're we're feeling uh together together with people and anything on relatedness from you guys uh well one of one of my pet hates is um uh, sales directors that commit to spending time with members of the sales team and then they phone up and say something has come up at the last yeah. minute and i can't do it so yes under relatedness i think it is about um having the uh, the ability to see through the commitments that have been offered to various individuals uh, within the team it's it's otherwise of course the the reputation that one incurs is just disastrous well the um the sales director hopefully it's a phone call to change it um or it could be an email um and i hope if you do have to move it we know it happens but you rearrange it straight away to show it's important but when you phone up or email and you say i'm going to have to change this meeting because i've, I've got this meeting to go to the person on the other end might interpret that as i've now got something more important to do than you are to me yeah. <laughs> and uh, that that's how it's that's how it's perceived as my uh, old yeah. ceo carlos brito who recently retired after many years at the uh, leading uh, Anheuser-Busch InBev used to say to all of the leaders in the company, if you haven't got time for your people, you are doing something wrong. Very clear, very, very clear statement. But yeah, should be, they, they're as a priority as anything else, right? So if you do have to change it, rebook it on the spot is my, is my suggestion. Relatedness is about being a group of people in terms of survival. If you're on your own, your brain thinks you're less likely to survive than if you've got other people around you because you can all support each other. So from a survival instinct perspective, being part of a group of people makes it much more likely from a neuroscience perspective that your brain is reassured that you can survive. And so being in a group of people and having that relatedness is really important in the workplace. So you don't have to have fancy team meetings, but you do have to have facilities in place where people can relate to each other and even in these days of zoom meetings 
that means just meeting on Zoom for a coffee for no other purpose than just to chat to other people. Yeah. And yeah. that's really important and providing people with the facilities. So many businesses, you will see, you know, coffee areas, kitchens, places where people can just socialize. And it's that social glue, that relatedness that enables them to get on with their job. And it's actually this concept of relatedness is related to the other factors in this model, because uh, if you've got, if you feel uh, that you have got that social connection, then many of the other things actually come into place and work very well. So I think it's, 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 it's quite common. I see agendas packed full of business stuff. And of course you want to get things done in team meetings and you want the team meetings to be efficient and effective, but you must have some time in there for idle Oh, quote unquote, idle chit chat and, and fun and just allowing people to have conversations with each other. Oh, some manager, oh, we haven't got time to waste on all of that personal stuff. Yes, you have. <laughs> and it's not a waste of time. You must make time for it because it's it's part of the social glue, isn't it? That the, the bonds people together. You know, there is yeah, research well, looking at what goes on in business meetings and I can't remember the details exactly but it, I know that the number that stuck in my head was 76 percent and the seven it was looking at the amount of gossip and chit chat in a meeting versus the actual business and yeah. the most productive meetings that happened was those where 76 percent of the time was spent on idle chit chat Wow, that's fascinating. Oh, because that's the glue yeah, that yeah, enables the other 25% to be done. Yeah, yeah. And I've, I've, I've certainly, you know, times that you're leading the meeting, you've probably got to steer things, haven't you? And you've got to keep an eye on the time. But, I, you know, it's, if it's all about business, there's no chance for people to relate to each other. So that doesn't. And, and the last one is fairness. And if, if people... Um, according to the research, if people believe something to be unfair, the insular cortex is activated. And that is the part of the brain apparently very closely linked to disgust. So that kicks a big, a big, powerful, you know, threat response. So, you know, the, the world without a doubt is not a fair place. We all absolutely, you know, understand that. Phil, you do some fine work for a modern slavery charity, which is which obviously is, you know, unfairness off the scale, isn't it? But mm. um We've got to try, I think, as sales managers, sales directors, sales leaders, to treat people, everybody fairly as, as, as best it's possible. And I know that when I was a sales manager, sales leader, you end up with some people, you're more you're, you're, you're favorites in the team. And I think you've got to be very, very careful not to have overt favoritism you know there may be some people in the team you just you just connect with better and you you know you think you've got a better working relationship as a line manager but you might unconsciously invest too much time and focus and effort on those people which will be noticed by the others who will feel that they are not getting a fair a fair kind of crack of the of, yeah of I, I think it also includes um uh, the uh, the the terms and conditions that people are mm -hmm. on the amount of money they are paid, for example, they might be doing exactly the same job, but for whatever reason, somebody somewhere yeah. is being paid more money than somebody else. Um, executives think that that's always confidential. It never is. Sales teams talk about that. So uh, we might as well realise that they know. Um, and I think an another where area where fairness is very, very important is when 
a company is interviewing for a position and it goes ahead with the promotion of an individual within the team. Coming back to your point, Simon, uh, is it the boss's favourite that has been promoted or is there an open and transparent set of criteria for that job, a very clear job description for the position advertised, a very, very clear understanding about the the knowledge, the attitude, the skills, the habits, what we've previously talked about on another episode is the cash profile, the knowledge, attitude, skills and habits. Is that requirement clear and openly communicated to all? Mm. If If it has been, then the chances are that when a promotion takes place, uh, other members of the team will say, well, that's understandable because he or she uh, is clearly better fitted to that cash profile than I am. Uh, Without something like a cash profile, uh, you will always run the risks of uh, accusations of unfairness. Sorry, go on, go on. on, on, The the whole issue of unfairness came up in um, recent child development research. Um, And this showed that actually we um, know what's fair and what's not fair before we can speak. Um, So um, it looked specifically at children aged around 16 months. Um, And so, you know, they've only been walking for four months, three three months, whatever. Uh, They can't yet really speak. Uh, They make noises, but they're not speaking. And so you've got children here who've who haven't acquired language yet, but they know instinctively what's fair and what's not fair. And they did this through touchscreen technology. And what they were doing was showing them uh, videos of people distributing things. So, you know, an adult distributing things to other children on a video. And the children were allowed to touch to give rewards or touch to give punishments. So they were taught how to do this. Um, And when the distribution was fair, they gave lots of rewards. And when the distribution was unfair, when there was unequal distribution of these things on the videos, uh, the children reduced the amount of rewards and gave more punishment. And so what that shows is that instinctively they know what's right. Mm. They know what's fair without even having the concept of fairness having been explained to them in any way. And the, the reason for this is because it must be inbuilt into our psyche because if there isn't fair distribution of things then the population as a whole has problems so we see this in societies where there is unfair distribution of wealth of health and so on huge problems for that society and so you can see that it's inbuilt into us so your salespeople knew whether you were being fair with those salaries before they could even speak, before you'd even met them. They knew whether you were going to be fair or unfair with giving you know, different salaries for people doing the same job. Yeah, I think, um, you know, that's it. I didn't realise it was so uh, unbelievably um, <clears throat> sort of uh, instinctive. That's, that's, that's fascinating. But to, just to go back to Phil's point, 
please don't be so naive to think that salespeople don't talk to each other about their remuneration, right? It's just, I've been there myself, right? They do. So even if you swear them to secrecy, right? They'll be having a team, because you've been really trying to work out the, uh, you know, the relatedness. So you're having a team night out celebrating somewhere and they'll be sitting in the corner after a couple of glasses of wine swapping salary information. So you've, you've ticked the relatedness box, but the fairness one has now, so your whole team night out might have demotivated the team more than motivated it so uh, i think you've got to think that one through you know think that one through very very carefully indeed so so there we go folks so status certainty autonomy relatedness and fairness hopefully that's given you a um, ton of food for thought if you if you want to research that some more you know if you, if you google the scarf model there are you know lots of resources online i think it's a fascinating fascinating piece of work so yes mr jesson no, I, one final comment. I, I think that these five uh, points, they're, they're very good filters for any executive to send a decision through. So if an executive is planning a, a restructure or in the case of selling the business, maybe, mm. um, it's to look at these five factors and to see how they're going to land with other members of the sales team. Um, and, and normally within a sales team, there is somebody in there who is a friendly ally, maybe somebody who would be a candidate for promotion in the future. And what I would suggest is, is always a good idea is to share some of the scarf issues with that friendly ally within the sales team just to see how it's landing for them because how the sales director thinks it's going to land it could be very, very different from how the sales body feels it's going to land for them. So there are always opportunities to test and trial these things with one or two members of the sales team before it goes live with everybody else. And that, that, that favoured member of the sales team maybe will normally keep the lid on it for 24 hours, knowing that they've been taken into uh, confidence by the boss yeah fantastic of course unless people then perceive that that person is being treated differently unfairly yeah. <laughs> or or favoritism so yeah gotcha but i you know i, I i'm poking fun i absolutely appreciate you you it's always a you know the meaning of your communication is the response it gets as the, as the people in uh, i think in the field of nlp neuro-linguistic programming or as graham is about to say not like psychology nothing I mean, like you're not psychology a, you're not, not a huge not a, not the biggest <laughs> fan are you on the planet of it so with with no offense to any of our nlp for fans who are who are listening in so um that's been David Rock's scarf model, folks. We hope that's given you some useful food for thought. Uh, if you want more food for thought, nearly 200 episodes now, uh, increasing all the time in the sales chat show back catalog. You'll find them from wherever you prefer to get your podcast. You'll find them all there. And they're all also available at saleschatshow.com from our website. So it's been Phil Jesson, Graham Jones, and Simon Hazeldean. Want to wish you good luck and good selling, folks. Thank you for listening. Thank you.
You have been listening to an episode of the Sales Chat Show. To stream or download a host of further free episodes that will power your sales success, please visit saleschatshow.com. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. And from everyone here at the Sales Chat Show, we'd like to wish you good luck and good selling. (laughs) 